Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled that I have with me again the crack cardiac crew from The Ohio State University. That's right. It's doctors Mike Asando, Joe Cody, and Tommy Grawl, and they are here to do another fantastic episode about cardiac anesthesia. And this time, we're going to talk about structural heart. That's a word we hear a lot structural heart. There's structural heart fellowships now for cardiologists. There's structural heart. You know, you do a room, a structural heart room. Those of us who aren't doing cardiac anesthesia, we hear this. Our colleagues are in the structural heart room. And I'm not sure we all know what that is. And certainly interesting to learn kind of what's happening in those rooms and how are anesthesiologists involved. So I'm really excited to discuss it today with these wonderful doctors. Welcome back to the show, all of you. Thanks for having us, Jed. Thank you. So, Joe, why don't I start with you? And if you could just kind of give us an introduction. When we say structural heart, what are we talking about? What's included in that? And what, you know, obviously cardiac anesthesiologists need to know about this because they're going to be involved. Is there any utility in kind of your general anesthesiologist knowing about this as well? Yeah, I think, well, to, to, to start with the first question, um, structural heart is a pretty broad term that be started to pop up in the in the uh, literature in like the mid 2000s um, or so and since then it's really boomed um i think of um of, of um structural heart as a um intervention on a cardiac st- uh, structure that's typically um intervened on by accessing the the venous or the or the um arterial uh, system and it's done in a cath lab or um hybrid suite, and it fixes things that we previously would fix with surgery, but um, now things have um, kind of um, advanced and changed, and we're able to do these in a, in a less, in, less invasive manner. Um, some examples would be uh, your, your TAVR valves, um, 
um, intervention on a uh, septal defect. Um, the um, mitroclip, which is a treatment for mitral regurgitation. So, um, so when someone says structural heart, that's usually what I think of. Um, now, I think it's important for um, uh, for a general um, anesthesiologist or someone who's in training to really be familiar with these procedures and what's um, involved. And um, I, I think if you work at a academic center, it may be the cardiac trained um, anesthesiologists who take care of these patients. But certainly if you go out into the community, um, it may be probably a, a general um, an anesthesiologist. So I think it's important that uh, people in uh, anesthesia know about these procedures and know what's going on and how to care for these patients. Well, that's great. And actually, that's really good to know, Joe, because, you know, I think we live in these bubbles in academic centers where we just assume it's done everywhere the way it's done here. I didn't know until you just told me that there are kind of general anesthesiologists in practice who are doing the anesthesia for these procedures. So that's great to know. And I, I think then even more so than I thought before, this will be really useful for folks out there. So fantastic. Why don't we start with you, Mike, and talk about the mitra clip. Joe mentioned that. Uh, let's maybe before we get into specifically what the mitra clip is, do you want to just remind us briefly what mitral regurgitation is, why it's a problem, and, and why we might consider something other than surgical repair? All right, Jed, once again, thanks for the opportunity. Um, we're really uh, thrilled to be here uh, to talk about, you know, structural heart um, disease, uh, sorry, therapies, and uh, how that impacts uh, patient care, especially from the anesthesiology standpoint. But for us to make an impact, we ultimately have to understand the disease process and then, you know, tr you know use that data to guide our anesthetics. So in essence, the uh, mitral valve um, is a very important valve. It's the most complex of all the heart valves. Uh, and mitral regurgitation is actually uh, the most common, you know, valvular heart disease uh, in the, you know, that is, um, and this is, you know, been reported in multiple um, data uh, over the years. But the we have to understand the mitral valve, when we talk about it, it's not, uh, similar to the aortic valve, where when you talk about aortic valve disease, most of the time it's just the leaflets. The mitral valve is a complex. So before we even get into mitral regurgitation, it's essential that we understand that mitral valve regurgitation can be because of any disease process that impacts the whole complex. And the complex involves the left atrial wall, the mitral valve analyst, the mitral valve leaflets, the chordae tendony, uh, the papillary muscles, the, and the underlying, you know, left ventricle. So any defect along any of these uh, structures can lead to mitral regurgitation. Uh, so currently there, there are different classifications of mitral regurgitation, but I'm going to focus, you know, this topic on mostly uh, primary degenerative mitral uh, valve disease. Uh, so primary MR is MR that's due to a defect on the leaflets um, itself, um, where so it can be a bowel disease, uh, or it can be rheumatic pathology. It can be because of a flail leaflet where the leaflet or prolapse where the leaflet, one or both leaflets goes above, you know, the co-optation point um, towards the left atrium or into the left atrium. And that leads to primary uh, mitral regurgitation. Um, secondary mitral regurgitation, which is also 
define, you know, others will call it functional mitral irritation is actually not a disease of the mitral leaflet structure. So the leaflets actually are structurally normal, but you have a disease of either uh, the left ventricle, so it can be an ischemic cardiomyopathy, or it could be just a dilated non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, or you can also have a patient who has an analyst that's dilated from chronic uh, left atrial hypertension. So secondary mitral irritation is uh, also um, essential in MR, and it's very critical to basically uh, segregate these two classes of MR and uh, decide what therapy you're going to apply, you know, to the patient. So a primary disease requires uh, fixing the defect, whereas a secondary disease uh, may involve, you know, if you have a patient who has left ventricular dyskinesis, uh, then maybe cardiac resynchronization therapy may improve the global synchrony of the left ventricle, and that may improve function, improve forward flow, and then by the left ventricle contracting in synchrony, the leaflets may come together better, and then you have less of a regurgitation. So these are the two main types of mitral regurgitation. Um, and currently for patients with primary MR, uh, the best and, you know, the gold standard therapy is mitral valve surgery. And that can be, you know, a sliding uh, repair, or it, it can be just a repair of the leaflet. And then you also put a band to support the analyst so it doesn't dilate, you know, any further. Um, it's been very well, um, it's, it's been associated with great outcomes. Um, so regurgitation after primary surgery uh, for mitral valve, you know, for primary degenerative mitral valve surgery uh, leads to very trace to mild, you know, recurrence of mitral regurgitation. However, the other group of mitral regurgitation, the secondary MR patients, surgery has not been shown to be great for them. Uh, so uh, most centers used to, you know, prior to the, the CTSN CVAML trial, which was uh, basically looked at mitral valve repair versus mitral valve replacement in patients with, you know, ischemic uh, left ventricular disease, the outcomes show that if you repair the mitral valve by putting a ring on it, the rate of recurrence of MR in two years was profoundly high. Um, over close to 60% of patients develop mitral regurgitation again. Whereas if we replaced it, then the MR did not recur. And that basically points to the fact that secondary MR is not, in essence, a disease of the valve leaflets. So if you just bring them together, but the disease is, you know, from the left ventricle, if the left ventricular volumes increase, the leaflets will pull apart again and the mitral regurgitation would recur. So this is where things are currently regarding primary and secondary MR surgical therapies and how um, patients fare after that. Great. Thanks, Mike. Now, when we think about these two different categories of mitral regurgitation that you laid out, is one or the other more appropriate for percutaneous repair? Uh, perfect. Excellent uh, question. So when percutaneous therapies became, you know, an option, uh, there were two pivotal trials that were um, performed uh, to determine what patients uh, fit, which, um, which, you know, which patients will benefit from, um, you know, percutaneous approaches. The first thing is surgical therapy is still the gold standard, especially for primary MR, but there are certain patients that are, you know, have 
multiple comorbidities. Maybe they've had, you know, cardiac surgery before. They have coronary bypass grafts that may, you know, develop collateral damage from a reoperative surgery when you perform another sternotomy. So some of these patients are not so considered uh, surgical candidates. So in essence, patients that are coming for percutaneous mitral valve repair with the mitral clip are to have higher STS or Eurospores and are not great candidates for surgical techniques. Um, however, the co-opt trial, uh, uh, let me backtrack, the Everest trials, the Everest one and two, they, they basically focused on patients with primary MR. Uh, a subgroup had surgery and the other subgroup had, you know, the mitral clip. And what they found was that uh, surgery was associated with uh, more perioperative, you know, complications, uh, whereas the mitral clip, which is, uh, we'll get into the process of the, you know, the, the procedure, the mitral clip is a transcatheter approach and was very safe uh, perioperatively. However, the, there was more recurrence of mitral regurgitation in the mitral clip, you know, group in comparison with the surgical you know, group. So that led to the approval of the mitral clip for patients at prohibitive risk for surgery uh, who had primary mitral valve surgery, uh, sorry, mitral valve disease. And that led to, after this, there was a subgroup analysis that showed that patients who had secondary MR may also benefit from microclip therapy. So uh, the co-op trial was uh, then performed for patients who had functional or, you know, secondary microregurgitation. And what they also discovered was that um, the the trial uh, was designed uh, to have two arms. Uh, you had a group that had, you know, guideline directed medical therapy with the microclip and the other arm had only guideline-directed medical therapy. Um, and basically, these are patients that are not surgical candidates. And the only therapies that they routinely uh, manage with is, you know, um, guideline-directed medical therapy. And it was shown that the mitral clip essentially uh, reduced mortality, reduced morbidity. Um, there was less hospitalizations for heart failure uh, patients performed better. Their functional classifications uh, improved uh, profoundly. So 2013 was the approval for primary MR therapy with a mitral clip and 2019 was approval for secondary. So it's approved for all forms of MR, um, but patient selection is very critical. Okay, great. Let's take a minute because I think this is just so valuable to review. Just say a few words about if a anesthesiologist is taking a patient with unrepaired mitral valve disease to the OR. What are the hemodynamic goals? You know, I remember being taught in medical school and, and sort of echoed since, right, fast, full, and forward. You know, is that accurate? Is that the whole encapsulation of it? Or it, just go over that for us. Perfect. So I think the first thing is when you have a patient with MR, always think about the anatomy and the, uh, the, the phenotypic presentation and what the echocardiogram shows. So you want to understand is it primary or secondary MR? Uh, so a primary, but essentially the, the, the symptomatic uh, presentation is about the same. So these are patients that have a huge amount of their stroke volume going backwards. So you have during systole, uh, certain volume goes through the aortic valve to the rest of the body, to the brain. 
And then the rest of the volume regurgitates back what's into the left atrium, into the pulmonary circulation, and that's what causes symptomatic uh, heart failure symptoms. So when you have a patient with, you know, mitral regurgitation, um, unloading them, basically reducing the afterload, right, so that the, the uh, mean arterial pressure is a little bit uh, on the lower normal side rather than keeping them you know, on the higher scale of blood pressures. So you have less impedance to left ventricle outflow because as you increase impedance to the left ventricle's ejection, more of that volume will regurgitate back into the patient lungs. So if you have an MR patient, especially if you're doing a MAC case and you're running them, you're keeping their blood pressures high, you may see the patient developing profound shortness of breath and they may become, you know, hypoxemic. So it's all, it's, it's about understanding the underlying, you know, situation. If it's a secondary MR patient, you don't want to keep them hypotensive because if you develop left ventricular um, systolic acute on chronic dysfunction, the regurgitant volume is going to increase and they're also not going to do well. So if you have a relatively faster heart rate, but not a heart rate that is going to essentially increase myocardial oxygen demand, but it's just a heart rate that's going to reduce the the end diastolic volume so you don't have too much blood that would regurgitate forward. So uh, when you look at the cardiology uh, management of these patients, it's afterload reduction uh, with you know, certain novel therapies such as Entresto and Abe's, uh, sorry, uh, ACE inhibitors and ARPs I used uh, a lot. Um, cardiac resynchronization therapy where you pace both ventricles so their synchrony also leads to improvement in the uh, secondary MR patients. Uh, and then make sure you maintain, you know, uh, optimal uh, left ventricular inotropy so you don't develop um, ischemic uh, um, MR. Right. So basically, we want to help them push forward and minimize the amount that's leaking out backwards. And you've laid out, you know, the ways to do that. I think fast, full and forward is a nice way to remember it. You've done a nice job of kind of explaining what that actually means. But, you know, at least for people to to have a way to to remember a, a basic approach and then the way you keep someone fast, but not, as you said, so fast that they're now going to be ischemic, the way you help them push forward with good inotropy, with lowered afterload, and then keeping them relatively, um, you know, not super volume overloaded, but on the full side of normal. So, and I like that you said, you know, kind of on the fast end of normal and keeping their blood pressure on the low end of normal, right? We don't want somebody who's, you know, got a map of 40 and a heart rate of 180, right? That's not what we're shooting for here. All right. Fantastic. So now let's actually talk about the mitra clip. What is it and how does it work? All right. So mitra clip therapy is predicated on the work of uh, Dr. Alfieri. So there's um, Dr. Alfieri did phenomenal work in Italy uh, looking at mitral valve repair in sick patients, but those that you didn't want to keep on cardiopulmonary bypass for a long time. So cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, we all know it's not great for patients who have, you know, a wealth of comorbidities uh, because of risk of strokes, risk of, you know, multi-system organ failure. And um, you can also get, you know, all sorts of, you know, inflammatory responses when you're in bypass. So uh, with the Alfieri technique, it was pre- it's a pretty simple approach where he sutures the anterior middle of the anterior leaflet because the mitral valve has two leaflets, the anterior leaflet, 
and the posterior leaflet and the posterior leaflet has, you know, three scallops, um, the P1, P2, P3, but essentially he sutures the second portion of the anterior leaflet, the A2, to the second portion of the posterior leaflet, the P2 segment, and creates a bi-orifice mitral valve. So this led to the creation of the mitral clip, where essentially you clip the anterior leaflet to the posterior leaflet so that the leaflets don't either sail into the left atrium, uh, they basically stay together, and you reduce the area of regurgitation between the two leaflets. And essentially by so doing, there's increased forward flow and reduction in backward flow. So the, vial, the mitral valve area reduces a fair amount whenever you do a mitral cleft therapy, and that's how patients um, do a fair amount better. So if you have a patient with like three to four plus mitral regurgitation, uh, which is moderate to severe and severe, and they are symptomatic, and they come into the cat lab for a mitral cleft procedure, uh, the goal is not to 100% correct the MR, uh, if you get it optimally corrected to no MR, that's great. But you have to balance the act of um, not over clipping because you can place one clip, two clip, three clips, but you don't want to trade off correcting the MR and then reducing the valve area to the point that now you have no regurgitation, but you have mitral stenosis where unfortunately the patient will also not get any benefits um, from, um, you know, the correction of the mitral regurgitation. Uh, so that is essentially how the mitral clip works. Uh, currently, there are, we're in the fourth generation of the types of clips. Uh, the NT used to be the original, but now we have the NT and the NTW. This is a little too detailed, but just so our, um, if you're anesthesiologist, you can understand it a little bit. And the point that the NT is a shorter length clip, and the NTW is the shorter version, but the clip is wider. So if you have a patient who has MR, but you look on 3D echocardiography and the MR is a little broadly based, so you don't put a little tight, you know, the NT is a shorter clip, but it also wider. So you can get wider capture of the two leaflets. And then we have the XT, which is a little, the length of the leaflet, oh, sorry, of the clip is a little longer. So you have the XT, which is longer, so you can capture a longer length of the mitral valve leaflets, the anterior and posterior. And then you have the XTW, which is the longer length, but a wider capture. So there is more precise personalization of clip selection for patients. Uh, and that has led to expansion in the therapies of the mitral clip for patients with mitral regurgitation. Interesting. Yeah, because it seems to me, as you said, that this is really a balance, right? You have to get enough of of uh, kind of clipping that you prevent most, but it's not going to be all, but most of the regurgitation, but without too much impedance of, of forward flow, or else you're going to have essentially traded mitral stenosis for mitral regurgitation. So you, it sounds to me like these new clips in different widths and different lengths are kind of allowing you for an, an individual patient to find that that ideal balance where you've shut down enough of the regurgitation where their symptoms get better, but they can still move blood forward into the ventricle. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah, it's, it's more personalized. When we, we were part of the initial Everest and co-op trials, and it used to be one size fits all. And sometimes you have a patient with shorter posterior anterior leaflet, and it was so difficult capturing the leaflets. But now you can do a 3D analysis, measure the length, and then say, okay, based on this 
the 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 presentation of the microirritation and the structure of the leaflets, I can personalize this patient to this clip versus that. And there are cases where you actually would mix up the the uh, the clips. So you can use maybe an NT when you're closer to the commissure. So you don't want to grasp uh, any of the subvalvular, you know, apparatus. So you can use that. And then maybe you can do an NT um, like a W when you're in the middle. So it's really cool. And neat what the interventional cardiologists are doing with mitral clipping uh, right. in, the, in this era. Great. So you mentioned before that, you know, there's data, there's good data that for people who can't have surgery, this is, this is better than medical management. What about compared to surgery? Do we know the answer to that? In other words, should everybody get a mitral clip or are some people better off getting a surgical repair? Perfect. So uh, currently, if the patient, if, if anybody that has um, MR, you, you know, you classify them to primary or secondary, if they don't have a profound prohibitive risk of surgery, less, you know, most of the high SDS scores, like 10, where a patient has a 10% risk of surgery, uh, those patients that are not surgical candidates can get a mitral clip. But so once you get into that subpopulation, um, whether it's based on the co-op trial and the Everest trials, they can all get a clip. Uh, so it's, it's really opened uh, to almost any MR patient uh, but surgery is still the primary uh, option because with a clip, if you get suboptimal repairs, so let's say you take a younger patient who is in their 50s and they have a primary mitral valve, you know, disease, a P1 or P2 prolapse. When you do a clip, uh, it's not going to be ideal because you don't get the ability, you don't get the opportunity to reduce the analyst, which also dilates with a mitral clip. So in 20, 30, 40 years, they may get into other, you know, they, they may get MR recurrence. So with that, surgery is the primary repair for, you know, primary uh, microvalve disease. Secondary MR is more an LV disease. So with surgery, uh, repairing the valve is still not great because of the, uh, the, the literature from Dr. Goldstein's um, article. So it's more either you're going to do uh, primary cabbage because it's an LV disease. Most of these guys have, you know, coronary disease. Uh, but then rather than do a ring aniloplasty, which led to um, over 50% of patients developing the mitral regurgitation again within two years, it's either you replace the valve or just do a cabbage and not, you know, potentially do anything. Okay. So take us through the procedure itself. What does it look like, the mitral clip procedure? Perfect. So it's a transfemoral venous uh, approach. So a patient comes to, you know, the cat lab, we, you know, you induce general anesthesia, you intubate them. Uh, obviously you place a hemodynamic uh, monitoring uh, with an arterial line. Uh, and then you put a transesophageal echo in. It's, it's essential to do, you know, a, a, like a surveillance echocardiogram, uh, you know, uh, in a rapid manner to make sure there's no thrombus in the right heart, left heart um, structures. And then they, the interventionalists will place, uh, will obtain femoral venous access. It's a 14 French, uh, sheath. It's fairly large. And they go through the inferior vena cava into the right atrium. And then they do a transseptal puncture. So you create an iatrogenic atroseptal defect. And then before they get into the left side, we, uh, routinely heparinize to get an activated clot in time of 250 to 30 seconds to reduce, you know, the potential for clot formation on these uh, structures. And then they advance- Mike, the sorry, 250 to 300, is that what you said? 250 to 300 seconds? Yes, sir. Okay. 
Yeah. And then they, you know, they come up with a delivery sheet and you monitor it echocardiography to make sure you go across the septum left atrium and then they go into the left ventricle, then they grasp the leaflets. Uh, echo is essential so that you know where the regurgitation is. You make sure they don't grasp other you know, structures such as cordae, because if you rip a cordae, now you can cause other problems. Uh, and then they clip you know, the leaflets you know, together. So once they, they uh, grasp the leaflet, you look on echo to make sure that there's optimal mitral regurgitation reduction. And what the, all the studies talk about is an MR grade that is less than or equal to two plus, uh, because that is more than plenty to improve the symptomatology you know, of the patient. Um, essential parts is when you're doing the transeptal puncture, you want it to be superior and uh, posterior because you don't want to be too close to the aorta where you know it, it's, it will be obviously um, devastating to potentially damage, you know, the aorta. But when you are posterior and superior on the septum, it, it provides the uh, implanter the ability to kind of curve around and face the mitral valve. And 3D echocardiography with multiplanar, you know, reconstruction is really useful in guiding the placement, you know, of the device. So when they place a clip and the MR reduction is not as appropriate, you look at, you know, the valve, make sure, you know, the valve area is still appropriate so you don't have mitrostenosis. And then they can consider maybe adding another clip. And you also want to ensure that there is stability in the clip. And then since they do a transeptal puncture and they have a catheter in the left atrium, you can measure your left atrial pressures before and after to make sure that there is a reduction in left atrial pressure, which corresponds to a reduction in mitral regurgitation. Great. And do they leave that septal puncture there or is it repaired in any way? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's uh, an excellent question. So currently they leave it. But for us anesthesiologists and echocardiographers, you always want to essentially look at the septum whenever they've taken the delivery sheet out because they're there. You can potentially cause a really huge ASD. And then all of a sudden, if your patient is developing hypoxemia, yeah, I always tell, you know, my fellows and residents, so when you when the clip goes in and the hemodynamics are okay, but you have hypoxemia, always look to make sure that the inatrial septal defect that was created was not, you know, in case they did more than one transeptal puncture and you have a wider than normal ASD, then you may have to put an amplitza septal occluder so you don't trade off MR for, you know, a right to left shunt. Great. Okay. So it sounds like this is usually done under general anesthesia. Uh, any time that it isn't, is it ever done under uh, sedation or without general anesthesia? So uh, routinely general anesthesia because you need a, you know, transvaginal echo is needed. Uh, there, I know others have trialed sedation with transvaginal, you know, TE uh, during the case. I think that's a little too, uh, I would, I would, I would just leave it as that, but I'm not, a, I don't like that. Um, using trans thoracic echo is also not ideal because there's a lot of radiation fluoroscopy. So you're not going to be able to keep uh, your TTE probe on the patient and guide them through the procedure. Right. So it sounds like the, the kind of, I mean, there's a lot, obviously, that the anesthesiologist is doing here, but one of the major and crucial steps is that TEE monitoring, uh, because that's going to help make sure the clip's in the right place, the ASD that's created is not too large, that the flow, it looks good, the regurgitation is reduced, it, there's not too much stenosis. So this is really a cooperative procedure, it sounds like. And we'll come back to that in one minute after a break. Stay with us. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, welcome back. And I was asking about how this is a cooperative procedure requiring a lot of teamwork. Yes, yes, it's totally cooperative. And it's it, and we always have to share what we're, you know, like the position you communicate with the with the interventionalists, you know, all the time because they're using fluoroscopy. So if I want him to move to the A2P2 region, I have to speak in the language that they understand. And also, um, the the classification of MR, some would say mild, moderate, you know, moderate to severe. If the if the if the interventionalist is used to you know one plus two plus three plus, you you want to use the language that they understand, so we don't create MS or we don't leave residual MR where the patient receives no benefit. Great. So we always want to be aware that there's possible complications, of course, to anything that we do. What are some of the major complications you think anesthesiologists should be aware of? Interoperatively, while this is happening, you've touched on some of those, and then also kind of immediately afterwards, wherever they go, if it's PACU or ICU. Uh, perfect. So the main complications are, you know, uh, vascular access site bleeding because you place in, you know, a large size, you know, uh, catheter, which they take out after the procedure. So um, you always want to make sure that if you get in hypotensive, it's not hypovolemia from uh, access site, you know, bleeding. Um, you all, it, when you do your TE, you want to frequently look for a pericardial effusion because uh, when they do the transeptal puncture, they can potentially damage the roof of the left atrium or they can, uh, the patient can develop, you know, injury to the aorta. Uh, secondly, mitral stenosis, uh, which we talked about, uh, is, is quite critical. Um, if there was any damage to the subvalvular apparatus, that's also crucial to know because that may actually require, you know, emergent so all of these conditions, some of them may require emergent cardiac surgery where a patient that was not a surgical candidate uh, uh, may now need you know, surgery. Another point that is uh, critical for us anesthesiologists is you should always think about mitral regurgitation as an unloading uh, phenotype. So when a patient has profound MR with severe you know, classification, close to 50% of of their stroke volume goes into the low pressure system of the left atrium. So if you correct the MR immediately and the patient, let's say, has a low systolic function to start with, 
you can develop acute heart failure. So that has been you know, reported in the literature as afterload mismatch uh, after mitral valve repair. And we, we've published a few articles on it. And the goal at that point is you look on echo, you see the left ventricle struggling, and you want to use an inodilator. Uh, so basically an inotrope that helps the ventricle squeeze, but also reduces the impedance a fair amount. It may seem counterintuitive because you have a low blood pressure and a dysfunctional left ventricle. And from us anesthesiologists, we always want to reach out for phenylephrine, epinephrine, but a drug such as dobutamine or mirinone mixed with epinephrine, you know, that inodilator combination would help improve the forward flow and, and improve the hemodynamics. Certain patients may actually need temporary mechanical circulatory support, such as a balloon pump, or, um, or an impeller uh, for, you know, 12, 24 hours as the ventricle acutely adjusts to the new hemodynamics. So after load mismatch, you know, when you're doing these clips, especially in those with lower ejection fractions, make sure you have an inodilator readily available because as soon as the clip goes in, it's not like cardiac surgery that you slowly wean a patient off of bypass and you can adjust medications you know, slowly or go back on bypass and kind of change your approach uh, to pharmacotherapy. With a mitral clip, as soon as the clip is stapled, the hemodynamics change. The afterload is increased and the patient can, you know, spiral down rapidly. Right. So as you said, this ventricle is used to having this low pressure pop-off valve that goes away to some extent. And now the ventricle has to push against the high pressure aortic system. And that is going to be a stress on the left heart and maybe too much of a stress. So uh, very important to keep an eye on that. So you mentioned that there are any of these things could go wrong and lead to emergent cardiac surgery. So I imagine this can only be done at a center where you have cardiac surgeons available in case that need arises. Is that right? Yes. Yes, correct. And um, the patient, you know, you always discuss with the patient the potential for cardiac surgery, and then you come up with a strategy. If, you know, some would say, I don't want any open-heart surgery, that's different. But the majority may say, you know, uh, if it's really like, cardiac tamponade from left atrial, you know, uh, posterior perforations, something that's not as, would not require a longer cardiopulmonary bypass run, you may need, you know, cardiac surgery. So you always need a center. It's, it, these are done in centers of excellence where cardiologists, cardiac surgery, anesthesiology, it's, it's a multidisciplinary team efforts where everybody's on the same page as to what to do when X, Y, and Z happens. And then um, that, that has led to, greater success uh, in the mitral clip over the years. Great. Do you have any feel for what percentage of these procedures end up having to convert to an open surgical procedure? So I'm not, I don't have, you know, it's, I know it's certainly way less than 3% because the, the co-op trial summed up all complication rates to be 33 3.4%. So okay. I would say, and that involved access side bleeding, cardiac injury, you know, uh, mitral stenosis, afterload mismatch. So I would say essentially the, the risk of convergence is way less than 3%. And most patients go home within 48 hours, walk okay. out of the hospital. Great. Do they go to the ICU, the PACU? Depends on the center. How does that work? It, yeah, it depends on the center. Uh, routinely, we send them to uh, our uh, cardiology floor. Uh, so, you know, the cardiologist keep, can keep managing the heart failure meds. And, um, but they, it's, it's, it, it requires, you know, a team effort. But even if they go to the floor, it just requires a floor where, you know, you have skilled uh, personnel that 
take care of, manage, have a lot of experience managing this pathology. Okay. Did now, so these patients are going to have this foreign body attached to their mitral valve. Are they needing to now be on lifelong anticoagulation? Uh, no. So it's the, the body and the telolysis over the mitral clip. It actually has a fabric over it. So they, you know, aspirin, uh, I think they are anticoagulate just perioperatively and maybe may a month or so. I have to look at the recent, you know, guideline for that, but it's not like a mechanical valve. It's similar to having like a bioprosthetic valve where, you know, short anticoagulation and then, um, uh, lifelong aspirin because of the other comorbidities because uh, right. uh, it just endothelializes rapidly. Great. All right. So we got, we have a patient, severe MR. We talked about obviously the mitra clip. We talked about surgical repair. Are there any other alternatives for that? There's medical management, of course. Uh, are there any, anything else, anything on the horizon, any other options for a patient like that? Yeah, there are probably maybe 20 devices being <laughs> developed currently. Uh, the mitral clip obviously is Abbott, Abbott's um, device, and it received the first, you know, indication for percutaneous, and that has led to um, major um, evolution in this space. Uh, Edwards has a device called the Pascal. It's currently being uh, investigated in Europe. I think we're going to see it. It's also neat, you know, it's it's similar to the clip, but it provides the ability to individually grasp the leaflet, so it's easier to implant. Uh, there's also a mitral stitch where you can percutaneously stitch, you know, the leaflets. Uh, and then there are other devices that are focusing on the other aspects of the mitral analyst, oh, sorry, the mitral uh, complex. So there are analoplasty percutaneous reduction uh, devices such as the Edwards cardio band uh, that goes through a coronary science to reduce the analyst. And then now we have percutaneous mitral valve replacement, which also it's a little bit outside the scope of this lecture, but but in this sense, you replace the mitral valve with a with a bioprosthetic valve, which is you know gonna sit in the analyst. So Edwards has a few valves, uh, the Cardio Q and the Sapien uh, M3. And Abbott also has a device and Medtronic has the Intrepid. So there are a lot of companies. It's it's an arms race as to how quick they can come up with therapies because uh, the structural heart disease uh, space of cardiology is really uh, transformational. Fantastic. It's it's exciting and, and just amazing the things that, uh, that are happening. It feels like uh, the technology is just accelerating. So it'll be fun to see what comes next and what the outcomes are. Um, well, Mike, thank you. That was a great overview of mitral disease and the mitra clip. Tommy, I'm going to turn to you now and talk about TAVERS. Now, I, listeners will potentially know that we actually did a whole episode on TAVERS, but that was four years ago, 2017. Hard to believe. A lot has changed since then. So I think it'll be really good to do a little bit of a review of TAVERS and talk about what's going on these days. So, Tommy, why don't you um, start by just reminding us what is a TAVER? What does that stand for and, and what is it for? Sure. So, um, just to start out with the basics, it, it is short for transcatheter aortic valve replacement, and it's really a minimally invasive procedure where a new aortic valve is inserted via a catheter, most commonly by the femoral artery, retrograde, and it's uh, placed within the old diseased aortic valve and deployed. And uh, it's kind of similar almost to placing a stent in an artery in that once the new valve is deployed, it just kind of pushes the old valve leaflets out of the way. And TAVR was actually first done in 2002, actually in Paris, and it was kind of done as a proof of concept procedure on a patient with severe AS 
who is in cardiogenic shock kind of as a last resort. Um, but since that time, TAVRs have really taken off and become an everyday procedure in most hospitals. So it was first approved by the FDA in 2011. And since that time, when I looked around 275,000 have been performed uh, in less than 20 years. And actually, if you look at the STS database, in 2019, TAVRs actually exceeded surgically aortic valves for the first time. So it's really becoming something that we see on an everyday basis. Wow, that is amazing. All right, so let's do the same thing we did with Mike and just give us an overview of aortic valve disease. When you're taking a patient to the operating room who has aortic valve disease, what do you wanna keep in mind? Sure, so there's a couple important things to keep in mind. First, uh, I think really you have to remember that with severe aortic stenosis, the left ventricle becomes very concentrically thickened and that's due to the increased afterload that it's pumping against. It's the same as uh, when you're lifting weights, you you put that resistance and the muscle gets bigger and hypertrophy. So what this thickening does is it causes two things really. One is that you get an increased myocardial demand and two, you reduce the ventricular compliance. So for the first part, the increased demand, it's really important to maintain your coronary perfusion pressure. And as you probably remember, coronary perfusion pressure is your diastolic blood pressure minus your LVEDP. So that's why you hear very commonly that it's very important to maintain afterload in these patients. And for the second effect, the reduced ventricular compliance, um, this means that these patients are much more reliant on their atrial kick. It can provide around 30 to 40% of the end diastolic volume. So it really becomes important to maintain a sinus rhythm and a normal heart rate so they can get that atrial kick. Um, right. Those are kind right. of the two things to summarize. You want to maintain your afterload and you want to maintain a normal sinus rhythm. And generally your first choice for treatment of hypotension should be phenylephrine. Right. Yeah. I, I guess I often think of this as the opposite of fast, full and forward, right? In the sense, not exactly, but in the sense that you want on the slow end of normal, right? Because you want to give them time to fill that hypertrophied left ventricle. You want them to have time also in diastole to perfuse the heart. You want them to have, as you said, elevated afterload so that that helps with cardiac perfusion. And, um, you know, I, I, about, tell me about volume status when we think, do we want them again, within the realm of normal, would you want them like on the high end, the way we would for someone in regurgitation or on the low end, or does it matter right in the middle? I think generally it's, it's more just kind of maintaining normal. Is that generally what you go by Mike? Yeah, I mean it's it's keeping them because the 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 problem with these uh, hypertrophy ventricles, as Tommy said, is the ventricle hypertrophy, so it thickens, and there's only so much space in the you know, the LV uh, chamber, so it reduces the volume. It grows inwards and reduces the volume. So if you can keep them normal, um, normal volemic, that's that's a great option. But it's essentially important not to keep them dry. That that yeah. that can be catastrophic. Yep, they've got to be able. They got to have something to fill to with, fill, right? Yes. Yeah, great. All right. So, Tommy, tell us about how a TAVR is done. 
where do they access the patient? Is it always through the groin, the way the mitroclip is, or are there other options? And what kind of anesthesia is done for these? Yeah, so when tabers were first being done, uh, it was kind of almost always general anesthesia, TEE, central line, arterial line, basically the works. And that's kind of changed in the last few years. And really, as the proceduralists have gotten better, the valves have gotten better, uh, really transitioning to most centers doing just monitored anesthesia care with, with sedation. And uh, I, I think that's probably more common now than general anesthesia. And some of the possible benefits are not surprisingly, you have less hemodynamic instability from not receiving as much anesthetics. You avoid intubation and mechanical ventilation. You could have a faster post-op recovery, reduced delirium, and then also you get the ability to monitor for um, embolic events more more quickly. Uh, for example, actually at a patient in residency who during the TAVR, we kind of switched to doing very light sedation where the patient was responsive the whole time. And this patient actually developed a neuro deficit while they were still in the room and they're able to immediately take the person to over to interventional radiology and actually um, get out that that clot that had embolized. So those are some of the possible benefits of doing MAC. And most of the studies have shown a trend towards a lower mortality, 30-day mortality and shorter hospital stay. Some people have pointed out some issues of bias in some of these studies. Like, for example, usually the MAC is done more commonly at the higher volume center, so they might have less issues anyways. But Regardless, I think most places are changing to doing primarily just sedation. Um, and the way it'll kind of start out is you'll get the patient in the room, start sedating them, and then the, the uh, cardiologist will start getting their arterial and venous access. And once they get that, they're usually able to pass you um, some tubing with an arterial and a venous connection, which is nice. So a lot of times we don't put in our own arterial or central line because during the procedure, we'll have that from the cardiologist from their access to be able to monitor the, the blood pressure and also to have central access. Um, as far as the approaches, far and away, the most common type is through the femoral artery. Um, there, generally, this is the easiest and safest method, but there are some other options. Um, for example, if the patient has torturous or small femoral vessels, um, you can do a transcarotid, you can do subclavian or axillary, transapical, and even uh, transcable is kind of an interesting option. It was actually first done at Henry Ford where I did my residency. You can, from the uh, femoral vein, you go into the cava and you actually cross into the uh, aorta and then do the procedure that way. You mean you, you puncture through the IVC into the aorta? Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Seems like then you'd have a hole in the IVC and the aorta. <laughs> Do you and repair them actually, somehow? No, it's kind of crazy. It seems scary that you'd have that big hole, but it actually, um, they don't close it afterwards and it usually just seals off. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, and that's mainly uh, what I had for kind of the, uh, for the anesthesia part. And then now kind of getting into the critical parts of the procedure yeah. Once they have their access, they're going to be the kind of the first big part is they're going to be threading the guide wire and the um, the uh, valve 
across the arch. And this can kind of be a critical time because there's a risk when you're crossing the arch and going into the ascending aorta that you can you can touch the aorta and rupture plaques or things like that. So some places will actually have balloons they put into the carotids and while they're crossing the arch, they'll actually inflate these balloons. They call them embolic protection devices. Um, I have not personally been at a place that uses these, but it is something that you can see in the literature um, that they'll temporarily inflate these balloons in the carotids while they're going across to kind of reduce, hopefully reduce the risk of of embolizing. Um, once they're past the arch, we kind of have to talk about the two valves that are commonly used. One is the Sapien 3, and that's made by Edwards, and the other is the core valve, Evolute R by Medtronic. And the reason I mention this is because it's important to kind of note that these two valves have different ways that they're deployed. The Sapien valve is balloon expandable, and because of that, it requires rapid ventricular pacing usually at like around 200 beats per minute while they're deploying the valve. And that's to minimize the arterial pulse pressure and reduce the risk of the valve migrating. On and how other, is that done? How do you do that pacing? Um, so they'll put a wire up uh, venously into the RV and uh, they'll, they'll be able to pace that way uh, okay. through the pacing wire. Yep. Um, Conversely, the core valve is self-expanding and it doesn't actually require pacing and it's kind of gradually released into position. Also with the core valve, it can actually be partially recaptured and repositioned if, if need be. Um, and most patients will spontaneously recover from the brief pacing episode. And my practice is I generally kind of recommend not treating that hypotension right away because a lot of times as right after the pacing, you have the new valve in, you've relieved that severe aortic stenosis, and a lot of times the pressure will shoot up because now you have this thick, strong ventricle that's no longer having to push against the stenotic valve. Yeah, it's almost the opposite of what Mike talked about with when you acutely fix mitral regurgitation, right? Now you've got this weak ventricle without a pop-off, and now what you're talking about is a strong ventricle without an impedance ahead of it. So all of a sudden, it can really blast. Correct. Exactly. Um, all right. Let me ask you, while this is all happening, if you've got an awake patient or a patient who's not under general anesthesia, we're probably not doing TEE. Are, are you doing TTE monitoring? Uh, that's a good question. So originally when people were going to sedation, they were doing TTE, but uh, to evaluate for paravalvular leaks and, and uh, evaluate the valve position. But a lot of places aren't even doing that anymore. They just use the fluoro to, once the valve is expanded, to, to look at the valve and make sure it's in good position and there's no significant leak. And then they just postoperatively, they'll do the TTE. So it's really becoming less and less um, invasive and complicated. Um, Interesting. And once the valve is deployed, there's a number of things that you kind of have to watch out for. and. Um, one is arrhythmias or AV blocks, and uh, some patients will require pacing immediately or sometimes even permanently after the valve is deployed. And that can even that can actually be more common with the core valve because it extends more deeply into the LVOT, and that's an area where the AV conduction system is pretty superficial. So 
that's the first thing to watch out for. And you need to be able to have some way to pace, which the cardiologist generally will have pads on the patient. They'll also have that pacing wire. Um, that's one thing to watch out for. Um, a couple other things you could have uh, annular rupture. So if there's extravasation of the contrast, that's a situation where the patient might have to be converted to open procedure. Um, migration of a valve is another concern. Coronary occlusion. So the valve, one thing to watch out for is the valve height and the distance between where the aortic valve is and the coronaries, and that can actually cause coronary occlusion. Um, and stroke is another thing we kind of already mentioned to watch out for. And then one other thing that can kind of happen is the mitral valve can be distorted by placement of the mitral valve or even the papillary muscles could be entangled in the uh, pigtail that they put into the left ventricle. So watching out for issues with the mitral valve is another thing, although without our TTE or TE, that's something that you might not really see very well. Um, and I imagine some of these complications, if they arise, just like we talked about with the, the mitral clip might necessitate conversion to a surgical AVR. Is right. that uh, something that happens uh, all the time? Uh, and I don't mean with every procedure, but I mean, are there certain patients who you or certain complications where you would go to that or others where you would not convert to an open? And one obvious, obviously, if a patient says, I don't want an open repair, then you wouldn't do it. But are there, are there other things you take into account when trying to make that decision about whether to convert to open or not? Uh, yeah, so I think at most centers, it's decided beforehand by the multidisciplinary team, the surgeon, the cardiologist, anesthesia. Is this patient going to be a candidate for conversion or not if something goes wrong? Um, so if they are, you, you know, you're going to have a perfusionist, a bypass machine, the surgeon, everyone in the room. But for example, there are some people they're going to determine they're not a conversion candidate. They're not going to survive surgery or they're not going to handle that stress very well. Like I think a classic example would be like an 88 year old who's very frail and they have a severe aortic stenosis and they, they've already decompensated some. That's someone that's probably not going to be a good surgical candidate. And then you'll kind of talk to them beforehand and say, if something goes wrong, you're not a candidate for conversion. Okay. Now, how do we decide who is a good candidate for TAVR versus who should preferentially have a surgical AVR? Yeah, and this is something that from the last time you talked about TAVRs, I think is becoming increasingly controversial. So originally, TAVR was only approved for people who were prohibitive or very high risk for surgery, and that was, everyone seemed to be fine with that. But now, over the years, the indications are steadily increasing. And if you look at the most recent Partner 3 trial and the Evolute low-risk trials, TAVRs are now approved not only for moderate-risk patients, but also for low-surgical-risk patients. So this is kind of causing some consternation because you're starting to take away um, aortic valve cases from surgeons, even in these low-risk patients. And the other thing that I think is kind of pointed out a lot is that the data is not really long-term yet with the TAVRs. So if you're looking at a low-risk patient, is the result really going to be as long-lasting when you compare it to a surgical aortic valve? Uh, with that being said, there are still a fair amount of exclusions for TAVR, and those would include a bicuspid aortic valve, a person with complex coronary artery disease, 
a concomitant severe valvular issues. So let's say they also have severe mitral regurg. That's not a TAVR patient. Um, significant aortopathy, very heavy annular calcification of the aortic valve. And then low coronary heights is another contraindication. So if your coronary height is less than 11 millimeters, it's not really going to be safe to put in that TAVR valve because you're at high risk of covering up the coronaries when you place it. And the last one would be hokum. That would also not be a tabard candidate. Okay. So our surgeons aren't out of a job yet. Correct. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So fantastic. And, you know, you said there's not really long-term data. I, I could be wrong. I, I remember, I think, hearing this idea that some people, you know, who might be younger could potentially get a taver and then get a taver inside a taver, essentially get it done again, where a new valve would be put inside that old valve. Am I is this wrong or is this something that's actually out there? Yeah, a valve in Taver is is an option. I don't know, Mike, you have I don't have a lot of experience with that, but I know it is a thing. Do you have anything, Mike, to to add to that? Yeah, no, Tommy's correct. Um it's the Taver provides the opportunity to do valve and valve as you go along. So um especially you can put it, it just gives you because you the metal frame uh reduces the valve area. So the next valve you're going to place will be slightly smaller, but hopefully, not hopefully, will still be bigger than the critical aortic stenosis that the patient's, uh, you know, TAVR valve develops over the years. So it provides the opportunity to keep doing this without the need to uh, open the chest. Okay, fantastic. All right. Um, And then, Tommy, let's end with just talking about what are some post-deployment TAVR goals? What do we think about after the, the valve is in for these patients? So it's really pretty straightforward. I mean, you kind of want to maintain them in sinus rhythm, monitor for any significant ST changes or sudden drops in blood pressure. Generally, like try to keep somewhat normal blood pressure. They've put pretty big sheaths in the artery and vein, and they're going to be taking those out. So you you don't really want a sky-high blood pressure at that point. Um, You're going to be reversing your heparin with protamine. And then... I would encourage people to perform a basic neuro exam as you're turning the sedation off. Great. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Tommy. Joe, let's turn to you to bring us home and talk about left atrial appendage occlusion or what's often referred to as a watchman. Um, What is a watchman device? So it's this really neat device. Um, It was approved in 2015 and it is this, cage-like device with a membrane on top of it, and it's it's designed to go into the uh, left atrial appendage in patients with AFib who are at risk for stroke. And what does it do in there? <laughs> so it, 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 it sits in there, and it, 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 it occludes blood from going into the appendage or um, coming out, so it basically seals off that appendage, which is... Um, Typically, with a patient with um, non-valvular uh, AFib, uh, when they do uh, uh, develop a thrombus, they'll 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 develop it in that appendage. So by doing this, it, it blocks it blocks blood from going in and out, and it um, it makes it so um, these patients aren't at risk from a clot developing there and uh, embolizing to the brain or somewhere else in the body. Great. All right. So. You mentioned, you know, people with AFib, right? They might get a, a clot. They, we know they're at higher risk for a stroke. How do you know if a patient is at 
risk for stroke with AFib? Is everybody, or how do you know they're at high enough risk that, you know, they should get this procedure? Well, uh, I think that going back to my, my, my days as a, as a MS3 on uh, IM rounds, we talked about something called the CHADS2 score or the CHADS2 VAS score. And it's basically a, it's a um, tried and tested uh, calculator that looks at the comorbidities of a patient with um, AFib and, and uh, depending on, on the uh, comorbidities and that score, um, it's, a, it's a way to predict if they're at high risk for a stroke. So, um, and I, I can put in the show notes, a, uh, a, um, link of people want to read more, but it basically takes a look at the, uh, comorbidities. And if it's a CHADS two score higher than two or, um, a CHADS two vascular higher than three, generally these patients will be started on some kind of, um, anticoagulation. Now you have to weigh the, the uh, risk and benefits there, but, uh, generally that's how it goes. So great. I'm glad you brought up anticoagulation because I'm sure some people will ask, well, why not just put them on anticoagulation? Why would we also want to consider doing this Watchman procedure? Yeah, no. So for for your uh, average patient um, who is at risk for stroke due to uh, AFib, they're still going to be on on, uh, oral anticoagulation. So um, that's still certainly the... um, the first line is to treat them the way uh, they've been treated for quite a long time. Now, um, some patients, though, and there's an other score uh, score uh, that uh, can be put in the show notes too, called the Has Bled score, and um, that kind of helps you. That's your devil's advocate to the Chad's to that score, where um, where some patients just aren't candidates to be on oral uh, anticoagulation for life. And in those patients, so say, you know, you have a patient, they have AFib, they had a GI bleed due to anticoagulation, you may consider them for, for, a, for a watchman because then you can still protect them from stroke, from AFib, and you can get them off anticoagulation for life. Um, so that's sort of the patient, a patient who can't be on these medications but still needs some, some, um, some uh, protection. Um, some less common things, why someone might be on it, you know, um, say you're a construction worker and you're at risk because of uh, your job to be on anticoagulation, um, that's come up. Um, so, but it's mostly someone who can't tolerate being on anticoagulation. Okay, great. So this is an option for people who can't be on lifelong anticoagulation and are at high risk for stroke. So how is this Watchman device implanted? So the um, initial steps are actually similar to what we discussed with the um, mitra foot. Um, the, the patients that bring them back, they're, they're brought back to the procedure area and they're um, typically, this is, this is done under uh, general uh, anesthesia. Uh, although there is an exception we can talk about, but typically they're induced with um, general anesthesia and a, a TE probe is placed. And then the proceduralist will uh, obtain uh, femoral access. And then from there, with um, guidance of the TE probe, going from the femoral vein, they'll go up, they'll go into the right side of the heart. And then with TE guidance, they will cross the interatrial uh, septum to go to the left side of the heart. 
Now, um, prior to doing this, there are a few other, uh, a couple things. Um, heparin should be given for a goal uh, ACT, typically between 250 and 300, because if you're going to enter the left side of the heart, you don't want to um, thrombus to form, and then that's uh, embolized to the systemic side of the body, um, the brain, and organs, um, extremities. So um, heparin should be given prior to them crossing over to the left uh, atrium. Um, and then when they cross um, onto the uh, left side of the heart, there'll be the, the procedures will has a special sheath and um, they guide that sheath, which has a delivery system into the uh, appendage and they deploy this occluder or the watchman uh, um, device. So that's sort of um, the general major steps involved in the uh, placement of this device. Okay, great. And you said it's usually done under GA, but you mentioned an exception. What's that exception? When would it not be done under general anesthesia? Yeah, so we the main reason uh, patients that need um, GA is because um, of the TEE uh, guidance. And um, when the cardiologist is crossing the septum, you want the patient to be uh, fairly still. This is a risky procedure. And so that's the kind of why we usually do a GA. However, um, some centers are are, are trying to, uh, to do it um, with uh, sedation because they have a special kind of uh, echocardio uh, 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 catheter actually um, called a um, intracardiac echocardiac uh, intracardiac. Uh, echocardiography uh, catheters or, or, or an ice catheter that actually goes with this uh, deployment sheet and does echo inside the heart. So then they don't need a TEE probe in. So hmm. as centers doing that, um, there can do a, sometimes with uh, sedation. And um, this is sort of something that's just being tried. It's on the horizon. Um, TEE is by far still the most common standard way of doing it, but um, it could be something where um, we're uh, similar to the to the uh, tabbers. We we did all those with GA and TEE. Maybe the Watchmans will convert to this too, but still something to be seen. Really interesting. Okay, and so when you're doing TEE for these, who's doing it? Is it a cardiac anesthesiologist? Is it the cardiologist? Who's doing it? So it depends on the uh, institution. Um, I think in the uh, academic uh, places, it's typically a um, cardiac trained anesthesiologist. Um, I, I, at my uh, previous place of uh, employment, it, I worked in the community setting and there was a, a dedicated uh, cardiologist there. So it's, it's somebody separate from doing the procedure. So the, um, so the uh, EP cardiologist or the uh, interventional uh, cardiologist who's going to be uh, implanting the device itself, they have to focus on that part of the procedure. So you need a second dedicated person to do the um, echo guidance. Okay, great. All right. So you put this thing in as you as you described, and let's say it goes well. Is that patient immediately able to come off anticoagulation, assuming they were on it, or do they need some anticoagulation in the immediate post-op period? Um, so no, they need to stay on for... Um, for for uh, 45 days or so. And so 
if you have a patient that absolutely can't be on anticoagulation, say there's a, um, a prohibited um, risk that's just too high that they can't even be on for those uh, 45 days, then they would not be a, a candidate for, for the, uh, for the uh, watchman. So, and the thought process is, is that is the device needs time to endothelialize. Um, so clots don't actually form on or near the device itself. So typically uh, these patients are, are actually brought back for a repeat TEE uh, 45 days or three months uh, roughly post uh, implantation to ensure that that um, the device still looks good, that there's not a, a blood that's seeping uh, um, into the um, into the um, um, appendage still. So uh, yeah, so you still have to be uh, on it for 45 days post uh, implantation, and then post that you have to be on dual uh, antiplatelet therapy for the first year. Okay, um, so you need. Yeah, 45 days of anticoagulation, uh, and then you need a year of dual antiplatelet. Correct. Okay. What are some common periprocedural complications that people should be aware of? Um, so the biggest things that um, um, we see um, in practice and, and um, we're seeing in the uh, literature and studies is uh, problems with the um, – Access site, so 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 um, so uh, bleeding from the from the uh, femoral vein. Um, that's probably the, the most common. Um, so you know, if you get called by the um, PACU nurse, hey, the patient's um, their groin's bleeding or they're uh, hypotensive is something to think about. The second thing, which is less common but uh, potentially more serious, is is a pericardial effusion um, that. Uh, that that occurred because because uh, because from doing uh, the procedure that um, they caused some kind of a, um, a perforation in a cardiac structure and now there's blood that is uh, collecting in the pericardial space which can lead to uh, tamponade. So those are kind of the two big things that um, as an uh, anesthesiologist you should be aware of. Okay. Great. And what are some alternatives? So we talked about, you know, obviously some people can just be on anticoagulation and don't need anything. Um, but you also mentioned that some people, for example, who are at just prohibitive risk and can't even do the 45 days of anticoagulation, then they're not a candidate for this. So what are some other options for someone with high clotting risk who has AFib? So I will say if you're in that position, the, the, the alternatives aren't great. Um, if someone's going to the, um, or for something else for, for cardiac surgery, the uh, cardiac surgeon can actually put a clip or sew off the uh, appendage. So that's done sometimes, but that's um, usually not for a non-watchman candidate. They're usually uh, getting surgery for something else, and that's done as part of that surgery. There are a few uh, other uh, devices on the market Um Lariat is one that comes uh, to mind um, that's used sometimes, and that's this device where the um, EP cardiologist will enter the uh, pericardial space with uh, with a small needle and a sub xiphoid uh, approach, and then there it's almost like a lasso that can cinch down the um, the um, appendage. So um, I've, I've skipped a few details there, but that's sort of one 
other um, alternative that's aside from surgery. There are a few other de devices on the market, um, none of which, to my knowledge, are approved in the United States. Okay. And do we know, let's say you're going um, to the OR for a cab or something like that. Is there any advantage, disadvantage? Do we know the difference between surgical clipping or surgical oversewing, like you said, of the left atrial appendage versus a watchman? That's a great question. I don't know if that's been looked at. I, I, I know in like the, in the uh, watchman uh, trials, um, they compared it to oral anticoagulation versus a watchman. And um, that data is uh, very strong. And 96% uh, of patients who, who, who get a um, watchman can come off of their oral anticoagulation. So I know that, but with regard to um, the uh, structural heart way of, of uh, fixing things versus the surgical, I don't know if anyone's looked at that data. Okay. Um, I don't know if uh, Mike or Tommy, if uh, you guys know. No, there's just uh, it's not, there's not been a direct uh, comparison, be, you know, comparing like the Watchman to you know uh, or left atrial you know uh, appendage occlusion to surgical. But there was a recent New England article um, by Dr. Whitlock. I think they looked at patients coming for cardiac surgery and those who had a fib and surgical ligation of the appendage. You know, those who got it, who received ligation versus not, and the stroke risk was profoundly, you know, lower. Um, it just came out uh, June 3rd, so a few, not too long ago. So it's the LAAOS, you know, Laos 3 investigators trial. Uh, so that's just something for us to, you know, be aware of. Um, but essentially, if you ligate the appendage, your risk of stroke during cardiac surgery is lower. Yeah, great. Okay, so that's really interesting. Um, and what about uh, things like ablation? So, I mean, how would you navigate that? If you're trying to decide for somebody whether to have an attempt at uh, ablation of their AFib versus a watchman, do you try the ablation? If that doesn't work, then you go to the watchman? Or, you know, how, how does one make that decision? No, I, I think, and I haven't looked at this in a while, but my um, understanding is just because a patient undergoes an ablation isn't going to guarantee that they're out of, uh, of um, AFib uh, um, all the time. So they may improve the uh, AFib, but it may the um, ablation may not last. And so uh, these patients, um, you know, just because you get in um, ablation doesn't mean you're in the clear to not be on anticoagulation. So I, I think, um, yeah, I, I don't think that an ablation really totally solves the problem. Okay, great. All right, well, gentlemen, this has been fantastic, really comprehensive, great review of structural heart, and I really appreciate it. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations and see if you guys have any for our audience. Anybody want to start? I, I can start. Um, I, I try to have the fun ones and then – the other guys in the in the group have like a book or something they like. That's so right. I'll uh, never I'll never stop giving Mike uh, grief for his first uh, random recommendation, which I think was something like study a textbook or something like that. <laughs> so I was down in Florida and I was looking for something fun to do, and I actually went on this um, 
it was a like a fan boat, I think you call them. And we went through the Everglades and we got up close and pers- personal with um, alligators. And then we watched an uh, alligator show. Um, so if you're down in South Florida, Miami uh, area, if you just Google uh, alligator fan boat show, you'll find a couple of places that do it. And I had a great time. Uh, I thought it was really cool. So something to do this summer if you're down there. Um, and if, if, if you have kids, it's kid-friendly. The kids loved it. The kids love to see the uh, alligators. So, uh, yeah, go on an alligator um, a fan boat tour. Love it. That sounds fun. All right. How about you, Tommy? Uh, so I was listening to some uh, Malcolm Gladwell. A lot of his books are on audio, and they're pretty interesting. Uh, but if you don't have as much time, I read one of his articles in the New Yorker. It was from a few years ago. That was kind of fun. It's called the Ketchup Conundrum, and uh, that's my suggestion. It's kind of a fun article. Is it ketchup like the condiment? Yep, it nice. is. <laughs> awesome. I love Malcolm Gladwell stuff, so I'll definitely check that out. I have not seen it. All right, Mike, bring us home. All right. Uh, I'll keep the trend with the boring stuff. <laughs> There's this book, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success by Carol Dweck. It's a really great book. Uh, you know, just... I found it as a really uh, exciting read. It's not as exciting as, you know, watching alligators and stuff. That's a little <laughs> too scary for me. But <laughs> well, That sounds great. No, I, that is better than a textbook. Um, and yeah. I, I'll actually echo and, and recommend a book as well. Um, listeners will maybe remember that um, a while back, a, a listener uh, sent in a recommendation for uh, a book by Jason Fung, who had written The Obesity Code, which I actually reviewed on the show, and then has written a new book called The Cancer Code. And so I had shouted that out as a listener recommendation, but I hadn't yet read it. So I just finished it. And it's really, really interesting. It's called The Cancer Code by Jason Fung. He does a really nice job of reviewing the kind of history of how we our understanding of cancer over the years, how that's changed, and how the kind of newest paradigm is leading us maybe to a better understanding of how we can really tackle this in a way we haven't been successful with before. So I definitely recommend it. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having us, Jed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jed. All right. That was fantastic. They really do a great job of covering this stuff in very excellent detail and really giving us a lot of stuff we need to know. I hope you got a lot out of it. Let us know. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. Leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. Are you doing these procedures? Is there anything you think we should have covered that we didn't? Let us know. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And of course, you can join the ACRAC Facebook group. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Any donation at all, we really appreciate. You can make individual donations, if you prefer that, by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or to Venmo and looking up Jed Walpaw. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to our ACRAC team. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. April Liu, soon to be Dr. April Liu, is our social media manager. And 
Kimmy Akash Cooley is a production assistant. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and doctors Asando, Grawl, and Cody, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.